Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix. So I got to tell you, I am so excited for this week's episode. We are going to be mixing things up just a little bit this week, but it is going to be so fun. I promise we are going to be discussing the Robert Earl Carter case and oof, it is such a good one. Today we are drinking a simple yet delicious Milky Way mocha with extra caramel because we love caramel and you can probably guess that it's iced (laughs) this week. We are shouting out Nicole T, Steve S, and Alice K. They have liked, commented, rated, reviewed, shared, or donated. So thank you guys so much. We love you guys. And we are so grateful for all the support you guys have been giving us with this podcast. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or on the World Wide Web at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. On our website, Addicts, you'll find a spot where you can submit Kate's recommendations, find today's and previous coffee recipes. There's also a pretty cool donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. August 18th, 1992 was just another Tuesday for most citizens. On this day, the daughter of Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love, Frances Bean Cobain, was born, and George H.W. Bush was president of the United States. People around the nation might have been listening to the number one song, End of the Road, by Boys to Men, watching the number one movie, The Crying Game, directed by Neil Jordan, or reading the most popular book to their children, titled Oh, the Places You'll Go, by Dr. Seuss. But, unfortunately, the peace and sense of security would soon be broken for the 1,500 residents of Somerville, Texas, which is located about 80 miles northwest of Houston. Somerville Police Chief Jewel Fisher was on another patrol call in a predominantly black neighborhood around 2.30 a.m. when he caught sight of a three-bedroom brick house that was in flames at 2nd Street and Gun Range Road, which is only one block off Highway 36 and backs up to the railroad tracks. Chief Fisher radioed for help, and volunteer firefighters promptly responded to the house fire. Inside the house, a woman, her daughter, and four of her grandchildren were found deceased by firefighters. They were identified as the bodies of Bobby Davis, age 45, Nicole Davis, age 16, Denitra Davis, age 9, Brittany Davis, age 6, Leah Aaron Davis, age 5, and Jason Davis, age 4. Throughout the investigation, it was discovered the victims had been stabbed, shot, or both. The fire, which caused extensive damage to the home and to the bodies of the victims, was determined to have been set by someone pouring gasoline or a similar substance in each bedroom and living room, as well as on each body and then igniting it. The three-bedroom home belonged to Bobby, and her body was found in her living room. She had been stabbed at least 29 times in her head and neck, and her head had been bashed in with a hammer all which penetrated her brain. 
Bobby was a supervisor at the Texas Department of Mental Health and Mental Retardation's Fannin Unit at nearby Brenham, where she had worked for 14 and a half years. Her daughter, Lisa, also worked there and was on shift at the time of the house fire. Lisa's children, Denitra and Jason, were with their grandmother, Bobby, at the time of the fire. Additionally, Bobby had been selected as a juror the Monday prior for an attempted murder trial where Frankie Lee Bell was the defendant. But Burleson County District Attorney Charles Sebesta said there didn't appear to be a link between the death and her role as a juror. Quote, the defendant in the trial, who is free on bail, was not a suspect, Sebesta said. A mistrial was declared after Miss Davis's death, and a new trial was planned. Let's discuss Lisa's children. Denitra's body was found in a bedroom with Nicole. Jason, Denitra's half-brother, was crouched down, and he had been cowering under a blanket at the time of the murder. They both had been stabbed in the head and chest between 7 to 13 times each. Bobby's daughter, Nicole, was sitting on her bed when she was killed. Her head was where all the damage occurred, with four to five gunshot wounds, two stab wounds, and her head was also bashed in with a hammer as well. She had just started her senior year at Somerville High School, where she was popular, a top athlete, and was an honor student. Leah Aaron appeared to have been hiding under a pillow in a bedroom when she was murdered. Brittany's body was located in her bed. Similarly to Denitra and Jason, they both had been stabbed in the head and chest between 7 to 13 times each. Brittany and Leah Aaron were staying with their grandmother, Bobby. Their father and Bobby's son, Keith Davis, resided in Houston, and the year prior, he decided it was better the girl stay with Bobby in Somerville for better schooling and a safer community. They had spent the summer with their father and had returned to Somerville the weekend before the brutal attack and house fire. Their mother was serving a three-year sentence at the Texas Department of Criminal Justice for credit card abuse. In total, the victims had been stabbed 66 times. The following day, TV news crews from Houston came by helicopter circling overhead, Texas Rangers arrived, and the investigation begun. There were no obvious suspects and hardly any clues. The fire had ravaged the crime scene and the killer or killers had left behind no witnesses. This makes the motive for the killings unknown. It was reported that a night clerk at the Somerville Stop and Shop, Mildred Bracewell, stated that two black men with a gas can had purchased gasoline shortly before the time of the murders. A hypnotist employed by the Department of Public Safety elicited a more precise description from her of one of the men, and a forensic artist sketched a composite drawing of the suspect. When the funeral came around the following Saturday, August 22nd, it was held in the gymnasium of the local high school and nearly one-third of Somerville attended. Among the attendees was Jason's father, Robert Earl Carter, whose strange appearance on that particular day drew great attention. The left side of his face, his left hand, neck, and ears were heavily bandaged. When Bobby's relatives began to inquire about his injuries, Carter's wife, Teresa Ray Carter, a.k.a. Cookie claimed that Carter's injuries were caused by his lawnmower explosion. Carter added, without explanation, I was burned with gasoline. Carter was 26 years old at the time and worked as a prison guard for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice at the Navasota Pac 2 unit. Okay, Casey, before you keep going, I want to throw in a quick side note here. Cookie, right? So Carter's wife. 
received the news of the fire and the six deaths shortly after she reported to work at about 6 a.m. on the morning of the fire. So remember, the chief of police discovered the fire at 2.30 a.m. and she is hearing about it shortly after she started her shift at work at 6 a.m. A co-worker called Carter at home to come and get Cookie, who was very upset. But Carter hung up without any comment. A supervisor subsequently called Carter. Again, the co-worker later testified it normally takes 15 to 20 minutes to drive from Carter's residence to the Brenham State School where she and Cookie worked, but Carter did not arrive until 30 to 45 minutes after being called. The co-worker also testified later on that she saw Carter arrive and that he wore a baseball cap pulled down on his head and a long sleeve jogging suit. She testified that Carter kept his hands in his pockets and had splotches like all over his face. Okay, and so then later, after we learned that those are the burn wounds, Cookie had taken Carter to his follow-up appointment at the doctor and told the doctor that she did not want Carter's ears to be bandaged because he would stand out at the funeral and they had... or. He would stand out at the funeral that they had planned on attending the very next day for the deceased victims. So just a little side awkward note and some information on Cookie that I wanted to throw in there. Go ahead and continue now. After the funeral, the Rangers visited Carter at his home in Brenham, Texas. Ranger Ray Kaufman, the case's lead investigator, read Carter his Miranda rights and asked him to come in for questioning. At the Department of Public Safety Station in Brenham, Texas, Carter sat down with four rangers assigned to the case. Kaufman, Jim Miller, George Turner, and their supervisor, Earl Pearson. The rangers continued to interrogate Carter, who insisted that he knew nothing of the killings and agreed to take a polygraph exam, which he eventually failed. The rangers had learned that four days before the killing, Carter had been served with a paternity suit paper filed by Lisa to obtain child support. Carter also maintained his story of the reason for his burns coming from an incident with his lawnmower. The rangers then went to Carter's residence to verify his story. The rangers found a small patch of burned grass immediately adjacent to the front porch of Carter's house. The burned area was six inches wide and three and a half feet long. Nothing of the nature to have caused Carter's burns. When they returned, the rangers told Carter they did not believe his story. Carter then agreed to accompany the three rangers to the DPS regional office in Houston for further questioning. After several hours of investigation, Carter finally agreed to make a statement about the crime. Carter claimed that he had been present at the Davis home on the night of the murders, but it was his wife's first cousin, Anthony Graves, who was to blame. Graves was on probation at the time for a drug-related offense. In the taped statement, Carter claimed that Graves drove to the house and Graves went inside. After he heard a shout, he went into the house and saw Bobby lying in the living room and heard screams from within the house. He claimed he had blood everywhere and saw Graves go from room to room. Then it got all calm and he observed Graves pouring gas everywhere. Carter claimed he left and re-entered the house, which is when he was burned inside the residence or near the front door of the residence after it was set on fire. According to Carter, upon leaving the scene, the gas can was thrown out the window. Later in his statement, Carter said he burned his clothes and threw the remains in the trash. 
He admitted he saw blood all over Bobby, who was slumped over. He also admitted hearing gunshots from the back bedroom and seeing three other dead bodies, one of whom was his son, Jason. He admitted the story about getting burned while using gas to burn grass was an excuse. During their interrogation, the rangers never questioned whether Carter had any role in the killings nor important questions that could have determined Graves' involvement, presence at the scene of the crime, or even why Graves would have brutally murdered six people he did not know. Two warrants were issued hours after Carter made his statements. One for Carter, who was immediately arrested, and the other for Graves. The next day, August 23rd, a search of Carter's residence revealed a box of 22 caliber bullets. A fingerprint on the box matched Carter's right thumbprint. An FBI agent determined that one of the bullets removed from Nicole's body had the same elemental composition as two of the unfired bullets contained in the box from Carter's residence. The agent stated that the bullet recovered from Nicole's body and the two unfired bullets came from the same box of ammunition or from two different boxes of ammunition that were manufactured by Winchester Western on the same day. They also discovered the 22 caliber pistol that he usually kept above his bed was missing, and the Pontiac Sunbird that he had admitted driving to the Davis home was gone. The Sunbird was later found. He had traded it in at a Houston car dealership shortly after the killings. Three days later, on August 26, Carter testified before the Burleson County Grand Jury that was investigating the murders. Although Carter told the grand jurors that he had fabricated the story, he had told the Rangers in the tape-recorded statement, he added additional details to this alleged fabricated story and, under questioning, would confirm details of his tape-recorded statement. Carter also said that he had spoken with Graves in jail before testifying to the grand jury and knew that Graves had previously testified before the grand jury. Carter told the grand jurors that he was concerned about the financial burden of increased child support that probably would be the result of Lisa's paternity suit. He also testified that he owned a 22 pistol, but it had been stolen six months before the murders. He did not report the theft to his wife or the police. He did admit he was at the site of the murders that night, and he had driven to Houston a day or so later to trade in the Sunbird he drove that night. He conceded that on August 22nd, during questioning by the Rangers, he had asked several times to talk to the district attorney in order to, quote, make a deal. Gregory Burns, another inmate confined in the Burleson County Jail on the charge of attempted murder, testified that his cell was near the separate cells in which Graves and Carter were confined. Burns testified he heard Carter tell Graves, quote, we shouldn't have done it. And Graves responded, quote, well, why did you put my name on it? Additionally, Cookie was initially listed as a co-defendant and used as a bargaining tool to get Carter to testify against her and Graves. However, he was not willing to testify against his wife, so the negotiations were altered to just be against Graves. Murder charges against Carter's wife were eventually dismissed and never pursued. In September 1992, Carter was indicted in the 21st District Court of Burleson County, Texas, for the capital offense of murdering six individuals during the same criminal transaction. The case was tried on a change of venue to Bastrop County, Texas, where Carter entered a plea of not guilty. Throughout the investigation and what was represented at trial, authorities believed that Carter and his co-defendant Graves went to the Davis house intending to confront Lisa, 
but they found that she was at work at the time. They got into an argument with Bobby and Graves stabbed her. Then Carter shot Nicole when she came out and recognized him. Court records also show that Graves was upset with Bobby over a work promotion she received that he felt his mother deserved. A jury found Carter guilty of the capital offense on February 8, 1994. A separate punishment hearing ensued three days later, and on February 11, 1994, the trial court sentenced Carter to death. Due to the publicity of the case, Graves' trial was moved to Angleton and started two years later. The judge in the case was Judge Howard Towsley, and it was prosecuted by Burleson County District Attorney Charles Sebesta. After he was convicted and sentenced to death for three murders, Carter testified at Graves' trial for capital murder. Carter testified that he and Graves went to the Davis home in the early morning hours of August 18th. Carter was armed with a hammer and a twenty-two pistol. Graves had a knife. Upon entering the residence, Carter hit Bobby with the hammer, then Graves began stabbing her. Nicole suddenly appeared and Carter chased her into the bedroom where he shot her several times. You have to notice that that's different. What he testified to in Graves' capital murder case was not what was taped on his admission initially. And so when he went under oath, he actually ended up admitting to doing the shooting where before he was saying that Graves had shot Nicole. Carter said he then went outside and retrieved a gas can from his car. He re-entered the house, pouring gasoline on Bobby and around the living room where she was located. He then went to the bedroom where he had shot Nicole and poured gasoline on her and another body he found there. He proceeded to the two other bedrooms, pouring gasoline on the bodies he found in each room. After getting cookie from her job, Carter said he burned a small patch of grass at his residence and threw himself on the fire to re-burn himself. Observing that his car had dried blood all over it, Carter cleaned the blood off of the car with gasoline. Carter then gathered the clothes he had been wearing during the murders and the weapons he and Graves had used and drove to a rural area. Carter burned his clothes at one location, then disposed of the pistol, knife, and hammer at separate locations. A day or two later, Carter traded in the vehicle he drove during the murders for a new car. Prior to testifying before the grand jury, Carter said that Graves physically and verbally threatened him when the two were in jail. As a result, Carter said he told the grand jurors that he had fabricated the statements to the Rangers that Graves was involved. Several people testified at Graves' trial that he had overheard Carter and Graves talking in jail, where the two discussed the need to protect Cookie from being implicated in the murders. Also at Graves' trial, his brother, Arthur Curry, and Graves' girlfriend, Yolanda Mathis, were to testify on his behalf. His brother testified that Graves was with the family all night. Mathis, however, did not. Before she was to take the stand, D.A. Sebesta asked the judge to warn her that she was considered a suspect in the slayings and that her testimony could be used against her. As a result, Mathis did not testify. Graves chose not to testify at his own trial as well. Prosecutors still had no motive for his involvement, yet Sebesta claimed he was the one who stabbed at least five of the victims. On November 1st, 1994, a jury convicted Graves and he was sentenced to death. At the appeals process, as we know and have talked about with other cases, it is automatic and begins shortly after sentencing, especially with capital murder cases. On May 8th, 1996, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals affirmed the original conviction and sentence. On June 26, 1996, Carter 
was denied a rehearing of his case. The United States Supreme Court denied certiorari review on February 24th, 1997. This is a writ or order by which a higher court reviews a decision of a lower court. Carter next filed an application with the state writ of habeas corpus with the conviction court on October 6, 1997, which was denied by the Court of Criminal Appeals on November 19, 1997. Carter did not petition the Supreme Court for a certiorari review. Carter next filed a federal habeas petition in the United States District Court for the Western District of Texas, Austin Division, on August 28, 1998. On March 18, 1999, the District Court entered an order denying habeas relief. Carter timely filed notice of appeal, and the District Court granted Carter permission to appeal two issues. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit affirmed the judgment of the District Court on November 2nd, 1999, and denied a rehearing on December 22nd, 1999. Carter next filed a petition for writ of C. Shirari with the Supreme Court, which was ultimately denied. As he prepared for his execution, Carter was keen to clear Anthony Graves before he left this mortal coil. Weeks prior to his execution, Carter provided a sworn 85-page deposition insisting that, quote, Anthony Graves did not have any part in the murders and was not present before, during, or after I committed the multiple murders at the Davis home. Carter's last statement was as follows, quote, to the Davis family, I am sorry for all the pain that I have caused your family. It was me and me alone. Anthony Graves had nothing to do with it. I lied on him in court. My wife had nothing to do with it. Anthony Graves don't even know anything about it. My wife don't know anything about it. But I hope that you can find your peace and comfort in strength in Jesus Christ alone. End quote. As he spoke, Aaron Keith Davis, the father of one of the victims, turned his back on the inmate. Carter continued. Quote, like I said, I am sorry for hurting your family, and it is a shame that it had to come to this. So I hope that you don't find peace, not in my death, but in Christ, because he is the only one that can give you the strength that you need. And to my family, I love you. Ah, you have been a blessing to me, and I love you all, and one day I will see y'all. So I hope y'all find y'all peace, comfort, and strength in Christ Jesus alone, because that's where it's at. Abul, behold your son, and Anitra, behold your mother. I love you. I am ready to go home and be with my Lord. End quote. As he lay strapped to the gurney, the lethal injection process began. He coughed, grasped, and uttered a slight groan before becoming unconscious. He was pronounced dead eight minutes later at 6.20 p.m. on May 31, 2000 in Huntsville, Texas. These are some interesting facts. So he was the 19th condemned killer put to death in Texas in the year of 2000, the 7th in the month of May, and the first of two that were scheduled for that week. That is crazy. They are not joking about that in Texas. Like, that's a lot of people. It's definitely not like California where you can sit on death row for 50 years and never have an execution date. So yeah, Texas was definitely on it at that time. In April 1997, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals upheld Graves' conviction on his automatic appeal. Graves argued there was not sufficient evidence and that the prosecution unfairly hinged his case on Carter's testimony. 
Carter later testified Texas Ranger pressured him into naming an accomplice, and he threw out the first name that came into his head, knowing Graves would have a solid alibi and not be charged. Graves' appeal attorney was former District Judge Jay Burnett of Houston, who at one time was interviewed and said after all his experience, he could tell when someone was lying to him and said that if Graves was lying, he was one of the best he had ever seen. Roy Greenwood of his firm stated, arguing in 2001 for a new appeal based on the fact that the appellate attorney failed to subpoena Robert Carter to testify, which caused the court to never hear Carter's recantation. Thirteen days before Carter was executed, he gave officials a sworn, taped deposition and described exactly how he alone committed the murders. He said he went into the house hoping to find Lisa Davis, who he had still been seeing even though he was married to Teresa Davis. He planned to confront her about the papers he was served seeking more child support. Lisa was working, but he expected her to be with the children. At 2 a.m., he went to the home and confronted Bobby in the living room. He hit her in the head with a hammer, and then he took a six-inch knife and stabbed her to death. He then went back and found his son, Jason, stabbing him to death. He then went into the room Nicole and Denitra were in. When he hit Nicole in the head with the hammer, she woke up, so he took a twenty-two and emptied it and stabbed Denitra to death. When he turned, six-year-old Brittany entered the room alongside Leah Aaron, where he stabbed them. Next, he went to the car and retrieved a five-gallon gas can and doused the home and bodies. When he lit it, vapors exploded, also burning Carter. Carter said he implicated Grace because officials threatened to charge his wife if he didn't come up with a name. He invented a story that Grace was upset with Bobby Davis because she received a promotion over his mother at the state school, even though that promotion was years earlier. Having Graves in custody, officials were never able to get a confession. They had Graves in a cell across the hall from Carter in order to monitor their conversations. They heard Graves ask Carter why he lied about him. Yet at trial, deputies testified he threatened Carter, even though the intercom system that did not work properly did not know who exactly said it. Prosecutor Sebesta said Carter told six or seven versions of what happened that night of the murders. He believes Carter tried to recant his testimony against Graves because he feared if he didn't, Graves would implicate Teresa Carter in the crime. Graves, however, insisted he couldn't implicate the woman even if he wanted to do so. He said he spent the night of the murders with his girlfriend and with his family. Graves' brother, Arthur Curry Jr., has always insisted that Graves was home with him the night of the murders. Quote, there is no justice, especially here in Texas. Had he done that and I knew it, I could not have hid the truth, knowing that someone's family was in torture, says Curry. Graves continued to fight to prove his innocence, but his appeals were denied. On January 13, 1995, he was granted a post-conviction hearing on a motion for a new trial contending that one of his alibi witnesses had declined to testify at the trial after D.A. Sebesta threatened to indict her for the murders if she testified. The motion, however, was denied. On April 23, 1997, Graves' conviction and sentence were upheld by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Later, in 1997, Graves was granted another post-conviction hearing. An expert witness testified that the testimony regarding a knife at Graves' trial was misleading. At the trial, a prosecution 
witness said tests showed that a knife that was similar to the one once owned by Graves could have been made to inflict the wounds on the victims. Dr. Harold Gill King, director of the Laboratory of Forensic Anthropology and Human Identification, testified that the prosecution's conclusions about the knife were unreliable. The motion for a new trial was denied. Carter continued to insist that Graves was innocent. Graves obtained a post-trial hearing on their recantations, but on February 3, 2000, the motion was denied. Jim Hahn, who was a juror in the case, sent a signed affidavit to journalism professor Nicole Casares, an advisor to St. Thomas students who participated in University of Houston Law Center's chapter of the Texas Innocent Project and had just appeared in a news broadcast. That broadcast spotlighted the two years of research the students did on the Graves case and showing their reasons for proclaiming his innocence. In that statement, he said he always believed Graves was set up by D.A. Sebesta. He said he and a female juror were the holdouts for over a day and a half, but knowing the others would not give in, they joined the guilty verdict. They knew Graves would beat it on appeal, he said. In October 2004, a hearing was ordered in front of the U.S. Magistrate Judge John Froschner by the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals due to the students in the Texas Innocence Network. In that hearing, DA attorney Charles Sebesta testified he pieced together a memory of turning over crucial evidence to defense attorneys who say they never saw it in trial. Graves' attorneys, Lydia Clay Jackson and Calvin Garvey, testified they never were informed that admitted killer Robert Carter had told prosecutors he alone committed the murders. Even with this, the judge determined in November the jury would have convicted Graves despite prosecutorial misconduct, of which he said Sebesta was guilty. Then, in February 2005, U.S. District Judge Samuel Kent upheld Judge Froschner's decision, even though the students had discovered the new evidence. A report the students put together stated, quote, Rather than pursue justice, however, the state engaged in a pattern of hiding relevant and exculpatory evidence from Graves' defense counsel in its desire to win at all costs. Then, in December 2005, Graves' case was again heard by federal appellate judges in Austin. Those judges and U.S. District Attorney Samuel Kent paved the way for Graves' new trial, which was set for September 12, 2006, or for him to be released. But then, in June of 2006, the Texas Attorney General's Office filed a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the ruling the prosecution withheld evidence in the original trial. In September 2006, Graves was transferred to the Berthelsen County Jail for a hearing which would begin a new trial. Then on November 3rd, Judge Kent allowed Graves to post $5,000 to secure a $50,000 bond because the district attorney had failed to retry Graves within 120 days, but that was blocked by the prosecutors. That is when Berthelsen County Judge Reva Talsi Corbett set a $1 million bond. This came just days after the county was granted a motion to rescue themselves from the case. This was also a day after the U.S. Fifth Circuit upheld Judge Ken's bond setting. In a bond reduction hearing in March 2007, Chief Texas Ranger Ray Kaufman 
who was a sergeant handling the case at the time, testified that Carter never told him Graves was innocent, even though in an October 30th hearing in the same courtroom, he told the court he said five times that Carter told him Graves was innocent. In the original trial, Kaufman testified that Carter implicated Graves in every statement except one. A special prosecutor, former Navarro County District Attorney Patrick Batchelor, was brought in and he, along with Julie Stone, with the Texas Attorney General's office, which normally does not get involved in local cases, decided to seek the death penalty once again, even though all of the evidence and misdeeds were shown. In April, Graves' bond was reduced to 600000 from $1 million. After the reduction, Special Prosecutor Batchelor said crucial evidence, including clothing of the victims, a hammer, bullets, the bloody hunting knife found on a nearby highway, and the skull caps of the victims was lost and may never be found. He blamed this on the change of jails and personnel. Quote, the knives or knife used in the murder were never recovered and props were used by Sebesta. Those knives with thin blades would not hold up to the stabbings the victims went through and not cut the suspect's hands, the new defense team stated. Jimmy Phillips and several other lawyers started working the case because they believed Graves was innocent. Then Judge Reva Towsley Corbett set a new trial date for June 8, 2008. In addition, she ruled the prosecution could use transcribed testimony of executed Robert Carter in the trial. In February of that year, Kelly Siegler was hired by the new Burleson County District Attorney Parham as a special prosecutor in the case. Catherine Scardino and Jimmy Phillips Jr. would handle the defense. At this point, Siegler started investigating the case again. She hired retired Texas Ranger Otto Griul a local Brennan boy, as Siegler called him, to talk with every witness involved in the case. Quote, after months of investigation and talking to every witness who's ever been involved in this case, the people who've never been talked to before, after looking under every rock we could find, we found not one piece of credible evidence that links Anthony Graves to the commission of the capital murder, Siegler said. Quote, this is not a case where the evidence went south with time or witnesses passed away or we just couldn't make the case anymore, Siegler said. He is an innocent man. Then, Burleson County District Attorney filed a motion to dismiss charges that sent Anthony Graves to death row and caused him to lose most of his adult life in prison. He's an innocent man. There is nothing that connects Anthony Graves to this crime. I did what I did because that's the right thing to do, Parham said, noting that his office investigated the case for five months. After spending two years in jail during pretrial proceedings, 12 years in prison on death row after his conviction, and another four years in jail pending his second trial, for a total of 18 years, on October 27, 2010, the charges were dismissed and Graves was released from prison at the age of 45. Upon his release from Burleson County Jail, he immediately called his mother, Doris Curry. Quote, Mama, what's for supper tonight? What are you cooking? Anthony asked. When his mother told him she wasn't cooking, she asked, quote, why? Who wants to know? Once again, he asked her what she was cooking. And again, she asked why. Quote, because I'm coming home and I need to eat, Anthony replied. Still not sure what was going on, Doris asked again, and he replied, This is your son, Anthony, and I'm coming home for real. 
Quote, I started screaming and carrying on, but when he got there, he didn't get nothing to eat because nobody got nothing to eat, Doris said. During press conferences the following day after Graves' release, Siegler demonstrated with the knife, which was described to be like the knife used, how it was impossible to have been a murder weapon. She followed up with this statement, quote, ultimately, it is the prosecutor's responsibility to make sure when they handle a case that no one is ever indicted who is not guilty, that a witness is not put on a witness stand and asked a question they cannot answer. That witness is never asked to testify as an expert where they are not. It's the prosecutor's responsibility to make sure that they never fabricate evidence or manipulate witnesses or take advantage of victims. Unfortunately, what has happened in this case is all of those things, Siegler said. Graves, who was late to the press conference because he stopped to eat ribs, arrived and hugged his attorneys and the students who fought to free him. I love that part. I love that part. (laughs) Eat as many ribs, be late to the press conference. They will wait. Yes. Oh my gosh. I am in love with this right now. That's like boss status. Okay. So (laughs) it's true. It's true. When asked what it was like, he described it as quote, hell is, you know what hell is? It was hell. He said he never gave up, including when they decided to retry him earlier that year with the death penalty again, and even came to him with an offer for a life sentence. He said he thanked God and he was very important in his past years. He was amazed at the buildings after 18 years and especially amazed of the, quote, talking maps in cars. <laughs> I would be too. Shoot. Yeah, that's, that's a really good way to describe a GPS, to be completely honest. <laughs> it's perfect. Graves received $1,457,000 in state compensation, plus a monthly annuity of $7,600. He should be getting that money. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. I'm glad. I mean, I don't know how to put a price on that, but I'm glad he got something for sure. Yeah, there is no price tag. Like, time you cannot replace. That's insane. Right. And now that you have that history, you're going to play on the defense for the rest of your life. Like, no, I'm... I understand that you think I'm a convicted serial killer, but I'm actually not. And I really actually didn't kill anybody. And now you got to defend yourself the whole time, whether you're trying to get it, you know, a job or just even communicating with people in the public. And that's so that's so hard to do, you know. So the fact that they gave him that compensation is good because it allows him, you know, a little bit of breathing room for sure. And then yeah, 18 years was taken. Like that is an insane amount. And Mm -hmm. Like you said, you can't put a price tag on that, but I'm glad he's getting something. Yeah, me too. In the aforementioned news conference, Siegler blasted former DA Sebesta, saying he encouraged Carter to lie on the stand and grossly mishandled this case. Quote, Charles Sebesta handled this case in a way that would be best described as a criminal justice system's nightmare, said Siegler. Sebesta had retired in 2000 after 25 years as a prosecutor. However, in January 2014, Graves filed a grievance with the state bar. On June 11, 2015, Sebesta was stripped of his law license after a three-person panel of the state bar determined he withheld evidence and used false testimony to win a capital murder conviction against Graves. In February 2016, the Texas Board of Disciplinary Appeals upheld a decision to disbar Sebesta for concealing exculpatory evidence, presenting false testimony, lying, and other misconduct during Graves' trial. In a ruling, the State Bar of Texas 
found that Charles Sebesta committed, quote, professional misconduct as Burleson County District Attorney when he prosecuted Graves in 1994. The bar complaint against Sebesta was filed by Graves, who said his complaint was nothing personal but an attempt to correct the criminal justice system. Quote, the ruling is more for the system than it is about me. It's about holding everyone responsible, and this is all part of it, Graves said. The bar's disciplinary panel found several prosecutorial mistakes by Sebesta. Even though Carter denied Graves' involvement when he testified before a grand jury, Sebesta did not correct Carter's false testimony against Graves at Graves' trial. Also during the trial, Sebesta told the court that an alibi witness about to testify on Graves' behalf was a suspect in the same murders. She was not. But after the courtroom statement by Sebesta was made, the witness, Graves' girlfriend at the time, Yolanda Mathis, refused to testify. Quote, Sebesta had no evidence or information tending to show Yolanda Mathis was a suspect or had any involvement in the murders, the bar's disciplinary panel found. On his website, Sebesta defends his actions and points to the bar's dismissal of a previous grievance over the case. Graves' attorney, Catherine Case, said that despite recent trial evidence reform, namely the 2013 Michael Morton Act, which forces prosecutors to disclose all evidence against a defendant, suppression of proof favorable to a suspect continues. The act is named after Michael Morton, who was cleared of his wife's murder by DNA evidence and released after serving 25 years in prison. Quote, even with the Michael Morton Act, I hear every week about prosecutors who are withholding favorable information, and these two cases should communicate that the State Bar of Texas is not going to turn a blind eye to a prosecutor's violation of ethical duties, Case said. Today, you can find Graves on Twitter at Anthony C. Graves. He is an activist and motivational speaker. He's been outspoken, especially on the torture inflicted by long-term solitary confinement, which he also endured during his years in prison. Sebesta maintains a site of his own, which is a page casting doubt on Anthony Graves' innocence and provides his own explanation of the circumstances. I am going to read you a bulletin Graves wrote while he was incarcerated. This was posted on his website homepage prior to, ex prior to his exoneration, although the website does not exist any longer. Greetings. My name is Anthony Graves. I am on death row in Texas awaiting execution for a crime that I did not commit and had no connection with. It was a horrible crime. A whole family, a mother, a daughter, and four grandchildren were stabbed, shot, and bludgeoned to death. Then the house was set on fire and the bodies were burned. A man named Robert Carter confessed to the crime. The prosecutor was not satisfied with that confession. He believed that someone else was involved, so he threatened to indict Carter's wife unless Carter named an accomplice. To protect his wife, Carter named me. Immediately afterwards, he recanted that and insisted that I had nothing to do with the murders. At the time of the crime, I was home with my brother, my sister, and my girlfriend. At the trial, two and one half years later, the prosecutor threatened to indict my girlfriend as an accomplice in order to frighten her from testifying as my alibi witness. Then he ridiculed my brother's alibi testimony, and he again threatened to convict Carter's wife unless Carter changed his story and testified against me. There was no other evidence against me. I never knew the victims. I only barely knew who Carter was. I had never been involved in any crime and had no prior record. My case has never been investigated. I have always had court-appointed defense attorneys who do not have the money allowed them 
by the court for investigation. I have a very good attorney, but I desperately need to hire an investigator. I am fighting for justice to save my life, and I ask for your help. My family has established the Anthony Graves Legal Defense Association in order to raise the funds to fight for my life and my freedom. Contributions should be made payable to this association and sent to my sister, Demetra Williams, P.O. Box 201023, Austin, Texas, 78720, who is the president of the association. The association is now being registered with the IRS as a nonprofit public charity so that contributions will be tax deductible. I welcome letters sent directly to me at Anthony Graves, number 999127, Terrell Unit, 12002, FM 350, South Livingston, Texas, 77351. You may learn more details about my case at arenas.com slash Texas slash Graves slash graves.html. Please help save my life. And side note that this website is no longer valid. Just an FYI for our listeners. We're just reading straight what he had wrote in his little letter. And then at the bottom of his letter, he put friends. Anthony is desperately trying to raise funds for investigators to prove his innocence. If you can help in any way, please do so. We cannot let an innocent man die because of a lack of funds. Please make checks or money orders out to the Anthony Gray's Legal Defense Association and mail to Bonnie Carraway, President, P.O. Box 545, Hardin, Texas, 77561. And again, like those addresses and websites and the contact information is no longer valid. And it was just a part of that letter that and the bulletin that had been posted on his website at the time. But it's, uh, I think, really refreshing to see that come from him specifically in his own words because I think a lot of times we see that from you know other people on their behalf you know my brother is innocent you know whatever and and they do have that he did have that family support but it was cool like to add that component of like here's my letter to the public like asking for help and mercy I only have a couple of things that I want to note before getting into our discussion questions One of the things that I found in my research that was super interesting that I wanted to share was that Carter had no prior criminal history at all. And then also there was no evidence of drug or alcohol abuse like in his life or that, you know, being under the influence during the commission of the offense is what he was able to excuse this behavior away on. You know, he's going to say, oh, I was you know, blacked out drunk. I don't remember it at all. He couldn't use that as an excuse. Like it was not used or mentioned or reported anywhere that he had a history of drug and alcohol abuse and had no other crimes in his past, which is definitely not something we normally see when we're doing research on this show. That's super strange and like odd. Oftentimes there is some sort of history, whether it's like a misdemeanor or oh I had a yeah, like a petty theft or something yeah, something there's usually something but for him mm-hmm. to have nothing is just super strange and like kudos to him but it's just it's crazy to to see that in this case especially right because his thought process was that this was the way to resolve his problems however he had never resulted to this type of behavior or anything at all criminal before you know, when he was, if he ever experienced any other troubles in his life. So that's just really interesting to me as well, that there's nothing there. I just thought that was really weird. Also, 
um, before we get into our discussion questions, I wanted to notate how the parents of the victims reacted when Graves was released. Because there's obviously two sides to that, right? So Glenda Rutledge, who was the mother of Brittany and Leah Aaron, watched the news reports of Graves walking out of the Burleson County Jail. She still believes Graves or someone was somehow involved with this murder of her children and family members. She said, quote, he gets a second chance. And if that's how it's supposed to be, that's how it's supposed to be. But nothing's going to change the fact that the girls don't get a second chance. Lack of evidence does not make him an innocent man. It's proven every day. If not him, then who? Glenda's husband, Keith Davis, after 23 years, conducted an interview in February 2016. When talking about his image of the girls, he said, quote, seeing my girls being stabbed and screaming for me. Their bodies are being stabbed, but their faces are sad but beautiful, calling for their dad. I can't even tell you today how I was able to keep my sanity. It was not tangible because I could not reach up and touch the bars, but it was a prison that we lived in all this time, end quote. Then, years later, Keith said he received an unexpected letter from Carter. In it was a shocking confession claiming he had committed the murders himself and apologized. Keith said he ripped the letter up in disbelief. He also attended the execution of Carter, but said it didn't change that his family was still gone and said he almost felt sorry for Carter. That pity lasted a short time, and his hatred for both Carter and Graves continued. Once Graves was released, they met up for a casual lunch. Quote, I told him when we sat down that I hated his guts. I said, I don't know, and I'm trying to get in a place where I'm getting comfortable being around you. For 18 years, you were the devil to me. Keith said he told Graves. Things have changed, and Keith says he and Graves do occasionally meet or talk on the phone. However, he says it's not a close relationship. Quote, if you asked me today, I would say, Anthony, would you like to trade places? I would do it in a minute. I would take his 18 years over mine any day. That is such a powerful statement to think about. He would prefer, I mean, so Graves is out, right? And he's promoting abolishing the death penalty and saying how horrible it is. I mean, you can go and listen to all of the interviews that he's done there all over the internet. And he's saying in all of the experiences that he had there and how guys were going crazy and eating their own eyeballs and trying to kill themselves and all these things. And still, even with that, Keith is saying, I'd rather have your 18 years over mine. It gives me goosebumps. That is so crazy, but I mean, if you think about it, he lost his kids. Like, no parent should ever have to lose their kid under Agreed. any circumstance, especially mm -hmm. one so heinous as this. Like, I totally get where he's coming from. Yeah. I feel like I would say the same exact thing, and I just, oh, it's sad that they were both put in this position when they didn't ask for it. Yeah, absolutely. It was heartbreaking that either of them even had to go through this but it's just it's so powerful you know okay and then moving on into the discussion questions number one did he plan this for when he thought lisa his baby mama would be there okay so i think a hundred percent yes i think that he planned to do it when he thought that lisa was going to be home and i think that this all started because of the court documents and the paternity test and he couldn't afford to pay more child support or whatever. But yes, I do think that he did plan 
to do it when Lisa was home, which is kind of crazy because like in today's day and age, you can just text them and be like, Hey, are you home? And then be fine. But back in these days, I guess maybe that was a little bit more difficult. So, but I think it was poor planning on his part, but yeah, I do think he did plan to do it when Lisa was home. Yeah. It's kind of weird because like, obviously he told multiple stories of this, right. And in one of them, he said he went to confront Lisa and that she wasn't there. So part of me wants to say no, because if that were the case, you know, if he was going to confront Lisa, then why not just leave when you get there and see that she's not there? You know what I mean? So we don't know if maybe Lisa picked up an extra shift or if this, you know, was a time and schedule that was changed or something like that you know like maybe he thought she didn't work that night and her work schedule changed completely or maybe she lied to him about her whereabouts I mean there are so many things that could have happened there we don't know if this was like a normal shift for her you know we have no idea so it's so hard to say I think if we had that little tidbit of information this question would be a little bit easier to answer but it just seems weird to me that if that was the case that he was going to confront Lisa when he got there and he saw that she wasn't there, why didn't he just leave? Like, why was the immediate reaction to just kill literally everybody in the home, including his own son? You know what I mean? I think I might have an answer to that, actually, okay. or a thought on it anyways. Possibly he went there to confront Lisa and he said, I need to talk to Lisa. This is some bullshit. I got these papers, blah, blah, blah. And then Bobby was like, oh, you bum ass, you can't pay child support to support your kids, blah, 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 got him all hot and bothered. And so then he just like kind of lost it from there. Like, I'm not a bad dad, but then he went and killed his son. So I don't know. I'm just thinking maybe like Bobby said something during that confrontation that like really triggered him and like he just lost it or something. Or we don't know, like maybe he thought she was lying to him being like, she's not here. And he's like, yeah, right. Let me in. You know, I'm going to go look for myself. But mm -hmm. then it it's the fact that he stabs all of these victims in the head and she was stabbed 29 times in the head and neck like that's overkill five shots on nicole who's 16 to the head stabbing her in the head and bashing her head in with a hammer and bashing bobby's head in with a hammer that's overkill and then all the kids he stabbed seven to 13 times you know i, I would assume that that amount of stabbing is not necessary and it's also overkill but it was to ensure that there were no living victims but it just makes me wonder if maybe he was there to potentially kill his son and that was going to be his way of revenge you know i'm gonna get back at lisa oh you want to take my son from me i'll take him from you permanently and you're not gonna have anything to say about that you know there could have been that process as well on carter's end and we don't know you know like we'll never know but i feel like there's so many different circumstances that could have arose that caused him to go haywire and kill everybody However, we do have to note that he went there planned. Like he brought all of those weapons and he brought the gasoline. I think that he was planning on killing whether Lisa was there or not. You know, he didn't go see that Lisa wasn't there and was like, oh, I'll come back tomorrow night and try this again. You know what I mean? So it was premeditated to an, a certain extent. But due to the fact that Lisa wasn't there, he knew that and he still proceeded to kill the entire home and never go after Lisa makes me feel like his son was almost the target 
it makes me feel that way. And no. maybe there was some bad blood between him and Bobby. And then, you know, he couldn't leave any victims or something like that. I don't know. But we don't have that information, obviously. Right. And he never says that. But the motive behind this still confuses the hell out of me because it could have been literally one of so many things or a combination of them. And so I just thought that was really interesting to ponder whether Lisa was his motive or his son was his motive or Bobby was his motive. Like what was when he went to that home, who was it that he wanted to kill and was not walking away until it was done. Like, who was that targeted victim? And the rest of them are just collateral damage. Yeah, it's super strange. And I guess, like you said, we'll never know. But it almost, it almost, when you were talking, it almost sounded like maybe he, because he didn't go back after Lisa, maybe he just wanted to do that in front of her or something. Like, he didn't want to harm her or something. But then I'm like, why did he have to harm his son then? Like... Yeah, that's what makes me feel like his son was the target, because in one of his stories towards the end, he was saying that he was still seeing Lisa while he was married to his wife, as if like he was cheating on his wife with Lisa or something like that. But I feel like that can't be true because she's trying to serve him with custodial paperwork, you know, so like, if you were still seeing this man, why would you try to take your son away from him entirely? And also, how would that correlate in his brain that he needs to kill his son? And not Lisa. You know what I mean? Uh, to me, my thought on it is that this is all monetary. He saw the paperwork, knew he wasn't going to be able to afford this new child support payment that she was wanting him to make. And that this was in an attempt to take his son away from him so she could gain full custody of their son. And he snapped. I, I really feel like this is a monetary thing. Like had she never... I don't want to like blame her for this. And I'm not saying that she's wrong for doing this because I don't know the facts or the reason behind the paperwork. But I feel like had that paperwork not been filed, then this may not have happened because I think that's the trigger in this. Yeah, it's so strange. There's so many different options. I'm just not sure. Yeah, it could be one of so many things, right? Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, this actually kind of moves into my second question that I think we're going to be able to pull from our answer on the first question. But the second question is... Did Carter have harsh feelings towards his son because he associated him with Lisa, whom he clearly hated, right? So if that's the case, like, if, and he has these hatred feelings towards Lisa, does that mean that he also has those harsh feelings towards his son because of association? I don't know. I hate this question. I hate that we're in this situation and that we have to cover this because it's so disgusting. But yeah, I feel like he has to. He has to hate his own son which is like disgusting to say but i feel like he has to yeah i feel like by it's like guilty by association right i don't get along with your mom so therefore i hate you as well you know and because my only thing is is that if you're out there listening and you're like no he probably didn't hate his son you know he was probably just whatever you know collateral damage or whatever uh, my question to you then would be well why else would he kill him then he was like four right yeah, he was four. Gosh. So at what point, you know, he's clearly not responsible for anything that Carter and Lisa could possibly be arguing about, but it's just around the topic of having a son. 
You know what I mean? I don't think that it was him personally doing anything as a child. You know, he's just a toddler learning, growing, doing all the things that our toddlers do, you know. But I think that Carter had to have had those negative hatred feelings towards his son because if he didn't and he truly loved him, why kill him? That's just, I mean, that's my thought on it. So I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I think he had to. I just don't understand how you could hate a kid. Your own kid. Like, but any kid. Yeah, and you know what else I realized when I was doing research on this case is that in all of his statements and everything that he said, even his last words and everything like that, he was apologizing to the family for the hurt that he caused them and that just making sure that everybody knew that Graves was innocent and that he had no part in it. And that it was Carter and Carter alone that committed these crimes. But you don't ever hear him commenting about like, I miss my son. I'm a terrible father. I should have never killed him. There was nothing that said anything about his son or demonstrating any amount of affection or love or anything like that towards his son, which just makes me really sad because it almost makes me feel like he went to his grave still hating his son. And that's a terrible thought to have that somebody has. And I, I could be wrong, but there's no evidence to prove otherwise. You know what I mean? There's nothing that is out there of him demonstrating a fatherly figure at all, ever. Yeah, it's just disgusting. I don't know terrible. what kind of a person could, like, do that. But, yeah, you're right. He didn't say anything about his son or, sorry, I killed my son or, man, I really miss him or anything and that's just a gross thought agreed i hope that his son like knows that he's like loved you know that his piece of shit dad doesn't have the final say you know like there are people that miss him and love him and right you know and the fact that he was cowering under a blanket when he was found that's so, so sad. sad. It's so sad. I can't. Like, I can't. It just makes me sad to think we about. We talk about people killing people all the time. And, you know, and in some of the cases, unfortunately, that does involve children. But it's just heartbreaking to hear that it was their own parent. That's always the worst for me. Yeah, it's like almost like a like your worst nightmare coming true. Yeah. It's just yeah. the person who's supposed to love you unconditionally and care for you and teach you and all these things is the one that ends up taking your life right no paternal or maternal instinct at all i feel like that's just terrible but um okay so getting into the last discussion question that i have do you think that there was a second person involved like was his wife involved did he have an accomplice what do you think i don't really think he did um i don't think there's a motive for anyone besides him so I don't see him having an accomplice or second person. And some people could argue and be like, that's a lot of people to do all by yourself. And yeah, it is. But like a lot of them were kids. So it's not like they were fighting him. Yeah, I agree with you. Once you get past Bobby and Nicole, you know, uh, basically by overkilling them. I mean, you just have kids running around, which is not going to be. It doesn't matter. You could have a whole bunch of them. It's not going to be any match for a grown man, you know, so I could definitely see that. And I agree with you that he probably did do it himself. I think the argument for the fact that there was a second person stems from a couple of different places. One is the testimony from the girl who claimed that there were two males that came to get gas right before the fire. However, they were never identified. So we don't know. 
that for sure. And even if there was another male with him, when he got the gas can does not indicate that he was there for the killing and setting the fire. But there is that thought that there was a second person with him shortly before the fire, if that's true. The second hint that there was another person involved would be, for me, the fact that Glenda Davis has such a strong instinct and feeling about that. She believes that there's no way that Carter could have done it by himself. And he was very insistent on the fact that he was by himself. So is he covering somebody up? You know, the only two people that he mentions is Graves and his wife. So it's like, why is he still covering his wife when she was never indicted on those charges or convicted or tried even for them? Why are you still covering for her? You know, is it possible she was involved? We don't know. Um, And then I guess the last point that could direct you to think that there was a second person involved is just the fact that he had no criminal history. So why jump to this conclusion if you don't have the influence of somebody else, you know? So I could definitely see the argument for the fact that there was a second person involved. And I think I could easily be persuaded that way, but I don't know. I think just my instincts and my feeling on this is that he did it by himself because you're right. He was the one and only person that even had any motive to commit these crimes but i don't know the fact that lisa wasn't there just kind of throws a wrench in that so it's hard it goes back and forth for me for sure i do think that there's one other possibility um the fact that he did work as a prison guard could lead to some sort of friendship or partnership with um maybe one of the inmates or a former inmate and it maybe it it almost seems like it if that is the route that like maybe it was a inmate or a former inmate who got released and he was able to help him or something it's almost seems like it kind of seems like he's a little bit of a pushover so then the lisa saying you ain't shit pay your child support bobby saying you ain't shit why are you complaining about paying your child support this person that's trying to help him is saying, you ain't shit. If you're going to talk about it, be about it, you know? And so then he finally just snapped and just did it. And I don't know if that's what happened or not, but it could be a strong argument that way. I didn't think about this until you were talking about it as well Is that I was saying, oh, he didn't really have any social influence on this type of behavior, but you're right. He spent all day in a prison. (laughs) That's where he worked. So maybe he did have that influence that I was saying he didn't have. I mean, I was thinking more along the lines in his personal life, you know, he was married and, uh, was living in a small town and had a good job and all that kind of stuff. But I wasn't even thinking about where he spends the majority of his day. You're right. Like he could have had that influence. Definitely something to consider. I think. Yeah, I think I could be persuaded either way on this one. Like, it has a pretty strong argument either way. I'm going to stick with that he did it by himself. But if you have a strong argument out there and you're listening to this, jump over to our Facebook page. Scroll all the way down past our Amazon link. You will see the discussion question listed for episode 23. And hit us up in the comments. Let us know what your thought is on these questions. I only have three today because they were quite a bit of detail and critical thinking that I just wanted to kind of have that discussion with you, Casey. So I only have those three. I'll review them really quickly. Number one, did Carter plan this for when he thought Lisa, his baby mama would be there? Number two, did Carter have harsh feelings towards his son because he associated him with Lisa, who he was fighting with? And number three, was there a second person involved? Maybe his wife? So jump over to Facebook, answer those questions, interact with us. We're really interested to hear what it is you have to say. 
Also, don't forget to hit up our website, crimaticspodcast.com, and leave a review or drop a case recommendation for us. All the links are there on the website. And with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode on the former prison guard who turned into a serial killer overnight. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated. <laughs> <laughs>